For many people today, healthcare feels like we're behind enemy lines. The system is geared to take care of us, but why do we feel like we're in it alone? Everyday stories are a powerful way to shine light on the gaps that make it feel this way. I'd like to welcome you to Everyone Hates Healthcare, where we bring you real people's healthcare stories, unfiltered. And now your host, Michael Swartz. Hey everybody, Michael Swartz here, and I want to welcome you back to the show. Today, we have Joshua Shea. Joshua is a pornography addiction expert. He's a certified betrayal trauma coach and the author of three books about pornography addiction. With nearly 250 podcasts, television, and radio show appearances since 2018, Joshua has given more interviews about pornography addiction and betrayal trauma than anybody in the world. During his interviews, he does not portray an anti-porn message, but rather promotes the ideas that porn addiction spans all demographics. And those with a problem should seek help before it's too late. After speaking openly about the addiction, he began receiving messages from wives, girlfriends, and mothers of addicts. As a result, he now speaks about the issues working through betrayal trauma, especially with partners of addicts and those who are facing infidelity. Prior to admitting his 24-year addiction in 2014, Joshua was a prominent magazine publisher, award-winning journalist, film festival founder, and a politician. Today, Josh is not only recovering from 24-year pornography addiction, he's also been sober since 2014. When he's not speaking, coaching, or helping others, you'll find Joshua in central Maine with his wife and two children. Josh, I want to welcome you to the podcast and really excited to be talking with you. And I want to thank you so much for inviting me on here. I appreciate you letting me talk to your listeners. Very excited. And I know the listeners are just as excited to learn more about you. So why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you become an addiction expert? Uh, well, I uh, I did it the way I always do things, not in a classroom, by actually going ahead and doing it. And that was really because I am very textbook when it comes to pornography addiction. I did experience both uh, sexual and mental slash emotional abuse as a child at the hands of a babysitter that I had for a couple years. And like many people, I was successfully able to sort of stamp down what happened to me and not think about it, not process it. But like so many people who end up that way, I drifted towards addiction. And my two addictive substances, when I was 12, I was introduced to hardcore pornography through magazines for the first time. I can tell you that within 15 minutes, I was a full-blown addict. It didn't take any time for me. I felt just something different wash over me like I'd never felt before when I first saw it. And I have only ever had that same feeling two years later when I got drunk for the first time. I was 14, and it felt exactly like I felt when I was looking at porn the first time. And it was that moment when I became addicted to alcohol. And for the next 22 to 24 years of my life, depending on which addiction you're talking about, I was able to pretty much hide things and pretty much present myself as a normal, well-adjusted, perhaps even overachieving kind of person. But inside, I was dying, and I needed these things to largely you know, keep me alive. And then it gets to the point where you realize you need the addictions to stay alive, and it flips on you. And no longer is it a help, it's a hindrance. And not just a hindrance, but it's the thing that may kill you if you don't take care of it. 
So I first went to alcohol rehab in 2014. And while I was there, I was introduced to the concept of being a porn addict. I'd never heard of this stuff or heard of this condition. And I met with a specialist. And after a few weeks, I really came to understand porn addiction is a real thing. And my porn addiction predated my alcoholism and my porn addiction probably ultimately caused more problems in my life than my alcoholism. So I took the advantage there to really uh, learn about recovery. I embraced it wholeheartedly. But what I noticed when I left rehab for porn and sex addiction, which I went to almost immediately after my alcohol uh, rehab, I realized that there just wasn't much out there at that point, 2015, for pornography addiction. I'm a journalist by trade. I worked in newspapers and magazines for about 25, 30 years before I started doing this full time uh, not too long ago. And I went to a bookstore here in Maine and I tried to find a book on porn addiction. There was nothing there. So I went to another bookstore. There was nothing there. And when I got home, I looked on Amazon and there were a few things there, but they were mostly just written by women who had porn addicts as husbands. And it told their individual story, which while I've read most of those books now, and they are you know, heart-wrenching, it really didn't apply to me. So I decided at that point with my history of being a writer and having gone through this as an addict and having learned a lot about it, looking at more academic type texts, I decided I would try to create resources for men and women who have porn addiction, but maybe they are not college level reading ability. Maybe they aren't even willing to admit that they have an addiction yet. and They're just a little curious. I wanted to be able to reach the average person because I just saw there was nobody out there doing that. And aside from my own personal story, if you look at the statistics about pornography addiction, and this is pre-pandemic, they are damning and they are scary, but nobody knows about them because we're all so scared to talk about sex and masturbation and naked people and, and pornography. And all these things scare people. And it's understandable why, but I'm out there trying to tell people, you know, writing books, even now that I'm coaching people, that we need to treat this as a real condition. We need to talk about it in society and we need to get over ourselves. You know, you and I will talk here for however long. It's never going to get X-rated because talking about pornography doesn't have to get X-rated. We could be grown-ups and adults about this. And before we raise another generation on the internet, not having any idea about what pornography can do to, to do to people, we need to start talking about this and start having some proactivity. So I slowly uh, kind of transitioned my way away from being a writer, away from being a journalist, away from doing ghostwriting and freelance stuff. And I moved into the pornography and now betrayal trauma uh, education, about uh, writing about it. I've got three books out now. And I've been seeing people um, coaching-wise, pornography addiction for about two years and betrayal trauma for about a year. So it was largely not a plan. It was largely just organic that I came into this. And I want to, number one, create resources for people who may not have resources that speak to them otherwise. And I want to let the world know that pornography addiction is a real thing and we need to deal with it. And turns out trying to do that is a full-time job. Incredible. So you talked about the statistics um, and you mentioned 
pre-pandemic. What are the numbers of people out there that do have a pornography addiction? Because you're right, there's, besides you and your resources, I just haven't seen that much out there. Right. Pre-pandemic, the general agreement based on studies that have taken place from, you know, around 2000 up to 2020 was that here in America, among men, the number was around, and this is all men, the number's around 18%. For women, the number is around 10%. But what's really scary when you dig into the data is a 2017 study that came from an organization called the Barna Group. They're out of Texas. They did a study interviewing uh, thousands of American men. And what they found was in the 18 to 30-year-old age group, and we can basically call this group the group that doesn't know the world before the internet, this group showed or self-reported 32% said they either had a pornography problem, a pornography addiction, an unhealthy relationship with pornography, or they thought their porn use was starting to become troubling. So that's one out of three men between 18 and 30 who probably basically had unfettered access to pornography on the internet who got to a point that they know it is a major problem. And that's scary to me because they don't stop at age 30. They keep aging. They become 40. They become 50. We're now talking about some studies that suggest uh, women in this age group, one out of five is an addict or self-identifies as an addict. So if we have so many unhealthy people, tens of millions of unhealthy young people in America, what's going to happen if they don't get help? What's going to happen if, when they start raising kids? What's going to happen to the next generation that's raised on internet pornography, especially if we don't start looking at this and learning what the effects are? That's going to be a very unhealthy sexual society. And like you said at the top, I don't view myself as anti-pornography. I can't view it because I have a problem, but it's much like my drinking. I know there are plenty of people who can have one or two beers. I'm just not that guy. I can go to a casino and win 50 bucks or lose 50 bucks and walk away, and there's no problem with that because I don't have the gambling addiction gene or, or whatever causes that specifically, but I understand it. And it's one of these things that you know people need to understand that pornography is very addictive and there can be very negative repercussions if you become a pornography addict. And we're starting to see just very negative repercussions of pornography being fed to young people on the internet nonstop. Even if they don't end up as addicts, there is, there is still a lot of problematic behavior. Yeah. What kind of comes to mind is, have you seen any pornography addiction? Is there any causation of other addictions? Because addiction is addiction. Has there been any statistics that have seen if uh, you have a pornography addiction, could it be a, I guess let's call it a gateway addiction? It can be, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can tell you that almost or the vast majority of people who are actual sex addicts, and by sex addict, I mean intercourse addict, because a lot of people use the umbrella term sex, sex addiction when there's actually several different kinds. Intercourse addiction, most people who have that also do have a pornography issue. However, most people with pornography issues are not intercourse addicts. 
And it's, it's interesting in that there are actually far more women who start out as porn addicts and then act out in real life than there are men who start as porn addicts and act out in real life. But like you said, addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. 95% of what happens with addiction takes place in the brain, and it's the same from addiction to addiction. Yes, if you snort coke, there's going to be different side effects than if you, you know, are morbidly obese from a food addiction. They have different side effects, but what's going on in the brain is very similar. You know, food addiction doesn't take place in the stomach and drug addiction doesn't, you know, cocaine addiction doesn't take place in the nose. Sex addiction doesn't take place in the genitals. All of it takes place in the brain. Addiction is an interesting, interesting concept. When does it cross over into addiction? And maybe I'll ask it to you in this way. What triggered You know, you said that you first went to alcohol rehab, but what triggered this change of heart, this, I need to get help? My entire life fell apart around me. I mean, and the thing is, I was able to hide the porn addiction from so many people, but I was not able to hide the alcohol. And what ultimately happened to me, and we're going back to early 2013 here, I was the president slash... Uh, owner or one quarter owner of a publishing company. And we put out three or four monthly magazines. We did very, very well for six or seven years. And then in late 2012, early 2013, I noticed some indicators that things were starting to go downhill. And I can write all day long. I can edit all day long. I can even manage a staff all day long. I am not a great business person. So when our revenues start dropping and our expenses keep going up, I got you know, scared because I didn't know how to handle it. I'm not a great business person. So I did something that was absolutely stupid. I pulled myself off of my bipolar medication. And that basically led me to becoming a three times, four times more dependent on alcohol, three times, four times more dependent on pornography. And while most people only knew about the pornography, uh, or most people only knew about the alcohol, I should say, just dealing with that was tearing me apart. And then the fact that I was up at 2 a.m. looking at porn and going into chat rooms, and I made my life absolutely miserable. I made the people's lives around me miserable. And then finally, my wife, my parents, uh, everybody basically got together and demanded that I go get some help uh, for my alcoholism at that point. They knew I had some, it it was not hidden that I, I enjoyed pornography from anybody. And my wife was pretty cool with it. She just had a guys will be guys attitude, but she didn't realize how bad it was. And then once it came to light, how bad the drinking was, how bad the porn was, I lost my job because I had turned into such a bad boss that the workers and the other co-owners who didn't work there, the other co-owners of the publishing company got together and had a meeting about getting rid of me. So I, I ended up getting fired from that job. I, you know, in that year where I tried to keep things together, yet my addictions were so much worse, I only slept three, four hours a night. I became a horrible father, a horrible husband. My hygiene dropped horribly. I was probably taking a shower every five days. It was just one of these perfect storms. And, you know, it's, it's like they say, you get tired of being sick and tired and you, you decide to do something about it. So when you were 
going through it, I mean, class, it sounded like a classic case of just an intervention. You had people around you, but looking back, what would you have done different? How would you have caught it with you now being an expert in right. addiction? And this isn't just pornography addiction. I'm, anybody who's, who's right. addicted, how would you catch it? Right. And that, that's one of the reasons why I do this is because I still ask myself, is there anything that my parents or my teachers or TV or somebody could have talked to me or could have given me information that kept me away from it? You know, like I said, I'm not a gambling addict. I'm not a drug addict. These things were not interesting to me or I just wasn't drawn to them. Now, why was that? I don't know. Why was I drawn to alcohol versus, you know, cocaine? I don't know. Why was I driven to looking at sex versus actually having too much sex? I don't know exactly. But the thing that I do know is that I had no idea porn addiction was a thing. So my hope, uh, we're never going to get rid of all addiction. I mean, we can drill into kids' heads how bad heroin is nonstop, and there's still a heroin problem in our country. But if we never talked about heroin, if we never talked about opiates and opioids, I bet the problem would be a lot worse. So my goal to doing this is to give enough basic information to enough people that they at least have a place of knowledge to come from. I don't believe in the U.S. that there is anybody, you know, 14 or 16 or 18 who would ever pick up their first cigarette and not have some idea that this can be very dangerous. You want to smoke, That's you take that into your, you know, you're taking your uh, health into your own hands, but you're not doing it ignorantly. You know what smoking can do. We all do. And we're actually seeing statistics in teen smoking rates drop after 40 years. So it's clearly, you know, all of the PSAs, all of the schooling, everything that we see clearly does work after a while. And I just want us to start doing this with pornography because we will dent the figures of pornography addiction and see them start to go down instead of continue to go up. And we need to do this. Exactly how do we do it? It's like recovery. Everybody has a slightly different way of being successful. So we just have to get the information to as many people as possible, and then they can process it the way they want. And I think that most people, if they understand that there can be very negative repercussions when it comes to pornography use, they may think twice about using it, or they may use it more in, in a more healthy way and not develop an addiction. I just want people to have the data so they can make good decisions. I know some will still make the wrong decision. I know that some will not know how to curtail their behaviors. But for those who can, for those who will, we have to get this information out there. Well, I think, and, and it's something you mentioned just right there, but also you mentioned uh, you being not going out and saying porn is bad. Uh, I think when we're young, when people tell you this is not good, you can't do this, it makes you want to do it more. It makes you yeah. want to do it more. So I, I think the what you're doing that's so impactful is that you're not going around as a, let's call it a anti-porn crusader. You're going and really delivering the information in a way that gives people the ability to understand the decision. I mean, you could even have food addiction. You could eat too much. 
addiction yeah. is addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, unfortunately, because this is pornography, which is sex and nudity and masturbation and all these other things, you know, kind of in this in this stew. All of these things, we have been raised in a very puritanical society to think that they're bad, to think that we don't talk about them openly. We don't discuss this stuff. Well, you know what? When you look at men 50 years old and younger, which I'm still part of this category, 50 years old and younger, 80% of men masturbate at least once a month to pornography. 60% of women 50 years old and younger masturbate to pornography at least once a month. Not saying they're addicts, but just saying that they masturbate to porn once a month. So if four out of five men and three out of five women are masturbating to pornography at least once a month, that actually means that's the most normal average thing you can be doing. But because we have this these puritanical roots in our society, we're so scared to talk about it when the fact is everybody's doing it. So why don't we just accept the fact, let's grow up, Accept the fact that we as people, as humans, the way that we are wired is to enjoy and be curious at looking at sexuality. And that's not a bad thing. That's a normal thing. You and I are only here because our parents decided to get it on one night. And we will only have children because we get it on with somebody one night. Sexuality has been here since the beginning of time, and in a lot of ways, pornography has too. If you go into, uh, I think it's Mesopotamia, where civilization started, you look at some of the caves and stuff. There is pornography drawn on those cave walls that is tens of thousands of years old. You go to any nice museum, go to their ancient and medieval you know, exhibit, which just about every museum has. You look at like Egyptian pottery that's thousands of years old. There is some X-rated stuff painted on the side of that. You know, you go to, you look at the, the Kama Sutra from India, which is basically still the best sex position guide that exists, is thousands of years old and comes from a very conservative society. Pornography in some form or another has always been around and pornography in some form or another will always be around. And I say this because in the late 60s through the early 80s, you had very uh, hardcore right-wing people teaming up with very hardcore left-wing feminists and anti-porn types to try to fight pornography. And it's in this time where we get all these, I guess, I don't want to say excuses, but these reasons to not look at porn. Well, the people in porn are all drug addicts who just, who have horrible lives and you're contributing to that. You know. Hey, I'm sorry, but the, the life of a porn star has never mattered to me when it was hot and heavy and I needed the porn. And I think that's true for most people. You want to talk about people who have had bad upbringings and who probably use drugs now and don't get paid enough and have a lot of self-loathing? Walk into any TGI Fridays or Buffalo Wild Wings or any of these places' kitchens, and you're going to find employees who have the same problems as porn stars. Porn stars don't have the corner marketed on misery at work. So that's not going to stop people. All of these reasons we've ever had to stop people don't work. And the proof is that more people are looking at pornography than ever before. And actually, with this pandemic, with the proliferation of things like cam sites and OnlyFans, 
we now have a society where more people are making pornography than ever before. So let's not pretend that pornography itself is the problem because that will never be solved. Instead, why don't we try to use education to maybe show some people they shouldn't look at porn because they have addictive tendencies? And for everybody else, let's teach them how to look at porn or what the potential drawbacks of looking at porn. Even if they don't become an addict, there are plenty of drawbacks of looking at porn that are possible, and these could happen to you. Now, I don't want to say that there isn't anybody out there who has a relationship with porn that is borderline healthy, that is at least is not unhealthy, because there are millions of people who have completely healthy relationships with it, just like I have a healthy relationship with gambling, in that it doesn't harm me. And I think that we need to recognize that. We need to recognize pornography is not going anywhere. And like I said, let's be big boys and big girls about it. Let's talk about it like we look at the tobacco industry, like we look at the alcohol industry. You know, it needs some regulation. It needs some more uh, restrictions put in place. But I'm not for banning it because you can't ban it. It's impossible. Yeah. What comes to mind is uh, you think about alcohol. There's always drink responsibility. You think about gambling, gamble responsibly. Sex is needed in society or our human race wouldn't survive. But I think it's all about whatever you do, doing it responsibly, doing it in a way that isn't detrimental to you, your family, or society. And unfortunately, where we are in society is not a place where we can even have a conversation like this yet. You know, you and I are having this conversation out in the open for people to listen to and hopefully learn something from. But, you know, go sit down at a table with your friends tomorrow and immediately ask, so how many of you masturbate to porn? (laughs) You're not going to see many hands and it's not because they're busy doing something else. It's just that we are ingrained as a society that we don't talk about this stuff, that this is not the stuff that, you know, good, normal, healthy people talk about. And that's where you get back to that shame thing. Can you tell me any time in your life where you've became healthier or better because people shamed you, because people embarrassed you? It doesn't happen. What happens is that you retreat, you alienate, you isolate, and you still engage in whatever that behavior is. It's just that other people have made you felt bad and made you not feel safe. So you go off and and you do it in an even more unhealthy way. And what we need to do is make people feel safe and not feel shame to talk about pornography or to talk about if they have a problem with pornography because it doesn't make you immoral. It doesn't make you evil. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It doesn't mean any of this. Addiction is a disease of the brain. Yes, it's a disease of our own making, but in most cases, you know, lung cancer is also a disease of its own making. And we don't necessarily try to make people who have spent too many years smoking feel like they're bad people for doing it. So we shouldn't do that with pornography or, frankly, any addiction. So, what is there a way, like, do you have any insights on like a self check? Like whether it's sex, pornography, or just any addiction, is there a number? Like, I'm sure that people are out there thinking like, okay, well, if pornography addiction is a thing, what's the number? Like, is there a number? There, there, or is, is there, there isn't. It's, it's the effect on your life. I mean, there are plenty of kids in college who, you know, only drink on Friday and Saturday nights, but they drink to the point of blackout drunk. 
So are they an alcoholic? Well, by definition, yes, they are. But it's, it's because it's causing negative effects. Addiction, no matter what it is, basically is, there's a couple things. Number one is, you know, is it potentially causing uh, harm to your mental or physical health? That's one aspect. Another aspect, do you make promises to yourself that you will not engage or you will not engage for the duration or frequency that you don't want to, but you find yourself, these deals you make with yourself never ring true. They always fall through. You have absolutely no willpower. The substance or the behavior has all the power. Another place is that you are starting to replace the normal activities in your life or you have replaced the normal activities in your life that gave you pleasure in the past. Instead of hanging out with friends, you're now engaging in your addiction. Instead of watching TV at the end of the night to unwind, you're engaging in your addiction. You know, you've met new people who are not as good as the people you were with before, but these people don't bother you about your addiction. So you're keeping different company. And ultimately, I think that the biggest indicator that you have an addiction is that you understand all of the negative consequences that can happen. And some perhaps have even started happening, but you cannot stop. That's a great insight and a way to think about it. And I think that's the the problem just a lot with society and how we think. We want to have a number. We want to have a ranking. We want grades. We go to school, we get a grade. Right. We're a quantitative society. Yeah. So it's it's tough to grasp, but I think those three points is a, is a great way to think about it. Now, if somebody's sitting there and they feel their life being taken from this addiction, what is your insight to like what would you do if you even felt the slightest possibility of addiction? Like how do you not let it grow into something that could lead to getting to rock bottom. Well, you you need a strategy and you're right. If you don't, you will get to rock bottom. You know, that's the thing that I try to tell people who I coach, especially the ones who have the pornography addiction is that addiction only ends in one of five ways. You end up losing your friends or family. You end up in financial distress. You end up in physical distress. You end up alienated from the world or you end up in trouble with the law. Those are the five places where, or you get help. You know, so I guess that's six places. You have six ways to go. Five are very negative. One is positive when you're an addict. And hopefully you go the recovery route because I've seen too many people hit rock bottom. I'm, and to me, rock bottom is death. You know, rock bottom is yeah. not finding yourself at rehab. It's not being in the street. It's not waking up in a strange woman's bed or waking up on someone's lawn with a hangover. Rock bottom is death. Everything before that is before that. And hopefully you figure out you need help. What I would suggest and what I do suggest to anybody is that they do two things. First, find somebody who has a similar problem, but who is in recovery because they will show you that you, you're capable of overcoming this. It's like if, if, if you wanted to fly by flapping your arms, you're not going to find anybody who can teach you how or show you it's possible because it doesn't happen. However, recovery does happen. So being around somebody, kind of like a sponsor in the 12-step groups, 
But having somebody who can be a mentor or somebody who can just share their story, who won't be the one to judge you, who won't be the one to shame you, that's very freeing to be able to tell your story to somebody like that and to see that you can get better and to have somebody who can give you some immediate day one tips. And then the other thing is, I think that you need to see somebody a little bit more on the professional side of things to understand where you are. You need to get a baseline of your addiction. I mean, are you in the early stages? Are you in the ongoing stages? Are you in the critical stages? You know, there are people who don't recognize how long they've been porn addicts and think that, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm starting this out. This has just become an addiction. And then when they dig into it with somebody strategy-wise, they realize it's a lot more. And that expert, that professional can create a strategy with you or at least explain all of your options if you truly do want to get over this. And, you know, that can include rehab. It can include one-on-one therapy, group therapy, 12 steps, you know, research, a lot of, you know, being on the internet in forum, different, you know, bulletin boards. There are so many different ways that you can recover. And most people who are successful mix several of them together. But you need to talk to somebody who's been through it and you need to talk to somebody who's an expert. And one of the reasons why I became a coach was because I can offer both. And, you know, it's, it's so powerful and so amazing and probably does more for my recovery to talk to guys and girls who are just getting into it, seeing them talk to somebody for the first time, you know, when they recognize, I don't care what they looked at. I probably looked at it and probably saw three times worse. So, you know, whatever, I don't care. You know, you looked at somebody have sex with an animal. I don't care. I don't think that makes you a bad person. I think that makes you a curious person and a probably a sick person, but that can be taken care of. That doesn't mean that you're bad to see people who are early in addiction and see them talk to somebody for the first time about this. There are men who I've talked to in their 60s. I mean, I'm 45 years old. It's weird to me to talk to somebody who's almost my dad's age, who has never talked to somebody about addiction before. It's almost like my dad coming to me and talking to me about porn addiction. It's just weird in a, I never pictured myself doing this, but it's so powerful when you see these guys and girls, when you see their shoulders drop, when you see them exhale, when you see them talk about these problems they've never had. And I can relate to them both from the point of view of being the guy who was the addict but thankfully now I have training and I have the the study and the research and the experience with people behind me that I can kind of hit them from both sides of that personal, you know, been there and also a bit of an academic way. And I think for a lot of people, especially with the pandemic, they're really afraid to go sit down face to face and talk to somebody. And since I do everything telehealth, it makes it easier because there is that gap between us. There is the digital divide where, you know what, if they don't feel safe, they can always hit the button and just disappear forever. And I never hear from them again. Or they can feel like, you know, I'm not a threat because I'm not sitting across from them. So they feel okay about opening up more to me. You know, I don't know any of the same people they know. We won't bump into each other, you know, going out to dinner or something like that. So it creates a level of, of a safe space that I think is missing in a lot of their lives. And when people feel safe, they will open up. And that is true about any addiction. 
that's true about any mental health issue. That's true about anything like grieving. You need to be heard. And because of how we treat porn as a society, and I'm not saying porn addiction, I'm just saying how we treat porn as a society, there is not a lot of opportunity for people who have a problem with it to feel free and open to get help if they can even find it easily. So how do you get in touch with you if there's somebody who wants to learn more, wants to reach out, needs coaching? Can they do it anonymously? Like, how, how do they get help from somebody who can provide the best of both worlds? Yeah, well, I'll tell you if you are only willing to get help anonymously, um, you're not really owning your issues. I'm not saying that every person you have to go up on the street and shake their hand and say, you know, hey, I'm Dave. I used to be an addict, but you have to accept who you are. And that that's part of it is that, you know, you need to accept the fact that you are an addict You and you need to own it and you need to be honest with the person you're working with. You know, I have clients who they'll come up on Zoom and there will not be a camera there. And I'll be like, you got to turn the camera on. I'm not sure. That's like, I'm not going to come to your house and put a sign up to your neighbors that says you're a porn addict or you're dealing with betrayal trauma. (laughs) That's not my gig. If you came in and saw me as a therapist, you would sit across from me. Well, you may be 5,000 miles away from me, but we're still going to look at each other because I can't help you as much. Since 80% of communication is nonverbal, I need to see your body language when you're talking about this. If your eyes are welling up with tears, that's a major signal that something's going on with you. But if I can't see you, I can't go that way. So I can't give proper help. I can't be a proper coach without at least being able to see the person. And then, and it occurs to me, you know, when you pay me, I'm going to find out anyway, because if it's sent, whether it's, whether it's PayPal or whether you send an electronic check or you're using a credit card, your name's on it. And if you're that freaked out about it, well, the first thing we're going to work on is just admitting that you're you're an addict and understanding that nobody's going to beat you up for it, especially me. So, you know, you can drop your guard around me a bit. But if people are interested, they can go to my website. And that is the letter P addictrecovery.com. You know, I do offer a free first coaching session, 30 to 45 minutes, you know, no charge, because we have to figure out if we click together. I've had therapists in my life who I didn't click with and I got nothing from them. I don't care where they went to school. I don't care how many times they've been on Dr. Phil or any of that stuff. If you don't click with someone, you don't click with them. So I have a first session with people to see if we click and to understand what the issues are. You know, if their major issue is that they have ADD and AD or ADHD, you know, I can't help them. I don't know anything about that. So I'll help them find somebody who can, but I can't, I can't help with that. What I try to do is just create an area where you can talk openly and It's amazing how much therapy comes out of just being able to talk openly, especially with someone who's not there in your life every day, who's not on your shoulder at all the times, who doesn't have ultimately a interest in your life. You know, I don't care what you do for a job. I don't care who you married. I don't care who you're dating. I'm here to help you and only you. And I don't really care what all the little uh, what's happening with everybody else in your life or everything else in your life. I'm here to talk to you about this problem. I'm rooting for you. I'm going to try to, you know, as as far as a coach or a therapist or even a doctor goes, you know, all we can do with mental health is really try to keep you coloring within the lines. 
the changes that come with mental health, with addiction, have to come from the person who has the problem. I, I can help. I can give ideas. I can keep you on the right track. I can play devil's advocate. I can ask hard questions. And I do all of those things, but it ultimately comes down to doing the hard work yourself and committing yourself to the hard work. The very first thing that I ask everybody is, so are you willing to get through this? And I'm not saying that's not get over it because so many people are just like, well, you should just get over this. That's much easier said than done. I don't want you to get over it. I want you to get through it. And the only way that you're going to get through it is by being committed and staying committed to get through it. So if you think that that sounds like something that works for you, visit pAddictrecovery.com. And if you want other modalities, I have them all on there. I have how to find the right rehab. I have, you know, here's some information about the 12-step groups that you can go to. I have tons of information on there. So even if you're not interested in my coaching, but you just want to learn more about pornography addiction, you know, I have three books out there. I've got a TED talk out there. I've got probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of words in articles I've written that are exclusively on my site. Um, You need to become familiar and become somewhat schooled in what is happening to you um, on a scientific level and what is happening to you on an emotional level and then make the necessary changes that the people who are professionals guide you towards. And if you have the commitment, if you have the passion, you can get better. I am proof of that. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who are addicts of all shapes, sizes, of all different kinds of addictions who have got better. Recovery is possible. You just have to need it more than anybody else. Now, I, I think the, the way you think about addiction and treatment is, is so powerful. If uh, somebody out there, let's say, has food addiction or just addiction that is a detriment to their life, that's taking them away from living their life, are you able to coach them through that? Can they go through your coaching? Absolutely. I've had people come to me strictly for grief. Here, here's my style, I think. And I think people, there are a lot of people who respond to it, especially in that first session we have. And my style is people have said, I think you, you know, you bring tough love to this. And it's like, I don't bring tough love to this. I bring regular love to this. What I bring is I have a very low tolerance for BS. And when it comes to addicts, I have a very low tolerance for addict behavior and addict excuses because I was one for so long and I can see through it. But what I do, whether your husband's a porn addict or you're a porn addict, or you are dealing with grief, or you have some other addiction or uh, an issue within your marriage, it almost always all comes down to trauma. And that's where I have done very well in helping people, is in addressing their trauma and in asking difficult questions. Because what I feel my style is, is much more, I will say what needs to be said, and I will ask what needs to be asked. And that's why I like being a coach and I wouldn't want to be a licensed therapist or a licensed counselor because there are so many handcuffs that are put on these people. Yeah, they can they can prescribe drugs and you know they have fancy letters after their name. And I've been in therapy for 20 years with my current person for seven years and I love her to death. But 
even when she and I talk about my coaching, there are times she says, I wish I could say some of the stuff you can say because it would get, it would get people better quicker. And I have a feeling that within the next five or 10 years, you would be able to go to a therapist, but I have a feeling in therapist's office, you're also going to see coaching and coaches who can work with people who have very specific issues. Like I said, you know, my, my therapist could go all day long about ADD because she's learned about it. But I can deal with porn addiction, sex addiction, you know, infidelity. I can deal with betrayal trauma. I can deal with the things that trauma causes because I know how to get to the root of that. Whether, like I said, it can come from so many different things. Betrayal trauma isn't just because your wife or husband is a porn addict. It isn't because they went and cheated on you with somebody else. Betrayal trauma can happen to children by being lied to by their parents. You know, if you're six years old and your dad says, I'm always going to be with you forever, son. And then he goes and he gets killed in a car accident and it's not his fault. But your six-year-old mind may say, well, dad lied. I can't trust adults. Dad lied. I can't trust parents. And for the rest of your life, you are scarred deeply with betrayal trauma. Maybe you have all kinds of bad things happening, maybe addiction, maybe bad relationships or whatever, but you never are able to trace it back to that early trauma. And that's what's important because usually people who end up in places like I did, they formed their survival skills at a very young age and it was survival based on abuse. And it was, and, and most of us, like I mentioned, most of us end up being able to repress those negative feelings and repress those memories, but we don't fully do it. We find maladaptive ways to do it. Mine was alcohol and porn. I think you hit on something that you're seeing therapy, you're starting to see coaching, making it through life. And I think calling you just a pornography addiction expert is an understatement. I, I think just, just from talking to you, just from hearing how you think about addiction, how you think about trauma and recovery, you're an addiction expert. And I think you can help a lot of people that are sitting there and addiction is taking over their life. So I think what you're doing is really incredible. And if any of the listeners are out there, want to reach out or... If you have friends, family, I think Joshua is a great guy to uh, be reaching out to. Yeah, and I so appreciate you saying that, Michael. Thank you very much. And, and it's because, you know, addicts speak a similar language. When I went to my second rehab at this facility, this was in Texas, at this facility, they dealt with drug abuse, they dealt with alcohol abuse, they dealt with sex-related addiction, and they also dealt with uh, food issues which could be food addiction and you could be morbidly obese, but it could also be something like anorexia or bulimia. There were several people there, both men and women who were in their eating disorder program. And what was so fascinating to me when I was there and really helped me kind of change the way that I look at all of health and all of addiction was I became closer to some of the people in the food issues program than in the sex and porn program. I was never somebody who cheated on my wife. Frankly, sex still scares me to some degree, but I was about pornography. And when I talked to these mostly women who had these eating disorders, 
we realized that we had different kinds of trauma and different things might have happened to us in life, but our solutions were very similar because it's not like drugs and alcohol where the aim is abstinence. The aim with eating disorders is a healthy relationship with food. And the aim with sex addictions is a healthy relationship with sexuality. If all of a sudden I never had sex, I never you know, thought about sex, I never found people attractive, if I tried to completely shut down my sexuality, that's just as unhealthy as being a sex addict. That's actually called sexual anorexia. And you don't want to go down that route either because I have met these people and they seem even more miserable than, than porn and sex addicts do. So it's about help striking a healthy balance. And that's what I found with these eating disorder people. And that's what I've really found in almost every aspect of my life is that you need to figure out a way to find balance. You know, I today have this podcast and five sessions. Shortly before you and I talked, I had my only 30 minute opening of the day. And I literally went outside and just sat in a lawn chair played solitaire on my phone and let the dogs run around because I just needed clearance. Now, my old life, when I was a bit of a workaholic, I would have been at the computer five hours before my first session. I would have spent that 30 minutes going through email and whatever else. And then I'd keep doing sessions and podcasts and come eight or nine o'clock tonight when I stop, I would just keep doing email because work was one of those things that gave me a sense of control and like sex gave me a sense of control or, or, you know, looking at porn and with a lot of these people, eating disorders, having the control over food gives them a sense of control and whether they starving themselves in a weird way gives them a sense of control. And that's not what we need in our lives to be healthy. It's not a matter of feeling like we're in control. It's a matter of feeling things are balanced. So now, even though the email may not get looked at till tomorrow, I mean, I'll look to make sure the, you know, nothing's burning down anywhere. But as long as I don't need to respond to anything right now, I'm not going to because my day is full. And when I'm done tonight, I'm going to have dinner with my wife. We're going to watch some TV and then we're going to go to bed. And all those emails will still be there tomorrow. None of them will have been life or death and I can keep going. And that's what balance is. And that's something that I think uniformly lacks in addicts' lives, and frankly, in most people's lives. I was just going to say. In I, addicts' I, lives is a healthy balance and the ability to be yourself as much as you possibly can. You know, ever since I, when I first started doing this four years ago, the, the writing and the podcast, I spent three years in recovery before I even started to do this stuff. I tried to be a scholar. I tried to be a doctor. I tried to be something I wasn't when I'd come on a podcast and speak all academically and very seriously. And that's not who I am. I'm the guy who wisecracks. I'm the guy who... Well, I was going to say, it is, sounds kind of boring. You're trying to yeah, be Yeah, I'm the guy before. who's quick. I'm quick with an insult. And I will tell an off-color joke that maybe even puts porn in a positive light for two seconds because <laughs> it proves a point or it's just funny. And there is a world out there, I think, of people, both mental health practitioners, people who need mental health help, and just all people out there who spend so much of their time and so much of their energy 
hiding who they are. There was one point in my life where I ran this company on a daily basis. I also created and was a ongoing curator of a large film festival that happened here in the Northeast. And I also, for a couple of years, was on my city council. So people would ask me, how the heck do you have this magazine company? You do this film festival. You are a local politician. And you still have a wife and kids and you, you know, how do you do all that? And I would tell people, and I did not mean this ironically at all. I said, if you understood just how much of my energy goes towards holding my crap together, you would really be amazed how I do all this stuff because half of my energy goes to just keeping it all together. And I realized now when I would say that, Back when I was an addict, what I was really saying was that I'm a sick person. I'm a very sick person, and this distracts me from it. And I have no balance in my life. The only thing I'm doing, I'm involved with activities that I can control. You know, what kind of a person runs for office just because they want to see if they can win a popularity contest? Well, that was me. I was just curious if I'd win in my town. And then when I became a city councilor, there's six other yahoos there who were voted in for whatever reason, who I now have to have, you know, committee meetings with. And I'm used to having 100% control. Being a local politician was not for me because it was about balance of control. It was about sharing. You hear about the government and you know, balance of powers and checks and balances. I didn't want that in my life because I thought they were stupid. And it wasn't until I got into recovery that it was like, oh, I see why we have balance now. I think this is great insight for everybody is, is balance is your mental health is so tied to your health and well-being that it's important that whether you have an addiction, maybe you don't, that balance will let you live a happier, let you live a healthier life in the long term. I've added something to your expertise. You're an addiction. I'm going to get onto my website and fix that right now. (laughs) Yeah. Addiction expert and lifestyle expert. Yeah. all uh, It's kind of funny because I was such an egomaniac for so much of my life and I hurt so many people. And I look at the afterlife as, you know, I don't know what religion is right or if any of them are right or if there even is an afterlife. But what I hope for is that if nothing else, there's a couple seconds where some spirit in the sky was keeping track. And I would like to know upon my death, how many people did I hurt versus how many people did I help? Because I know I went deep on the hurting for many years. And now I'm into helping people. And I think that when all is said and done and they they put me six feet under, if that tote board has or that scoreboard, if there's one more person I helped than I hurt, then my life was a net good. And that's all I'm trying for now is to make my life a net good when all is said and done. I was a taker. I was selfish. I was all of those things. I am now proof that you can change, that there is a way to do it. You know, maybe I won't be doing this in 10 years, but right now this feels like the thing I'm supposed to be doing. This feels like my passion. I don't know what it's like to feel called by God to be a preacher, but I've never felt so sure that I'm doing the right thing that I'm doing now. Well, no, just speaking to you, I think you are doing the right thing. The way you look at it is, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect at, at first. And then I started digging into your site and, and some of the other interviews you've done and, and the way that you look at addiction and, and just living a healthy life. I think 
you're definitely uh, doing a lot of good right now. So uh, keep that up. Appreciate that. Now, I have one last thing I just need to know from you because I have heard, and this is off the wall. I don't know why this popped into my head, but <laughs> and I don't know. I love the lead up yeah, to this. I don't know uh, where I even heard this. And so I want to know if you know if there's any validity to this. I heard that the shopping cart, the online shopping cart, was actually created for the porn industry. Is there any validity to that? Never heard that. However, I will tell you that if you go back to the 1950s and you look at visual uh, media, I mean, and, and now it's digital, but if you look at visual mediums, whether it's TV or it's VHS tapes or w- whatever it is, and now even onto cell phones with, with video and, and you know things like Instagram and that kind of stuff. If you look at that, the two industries that are always leading the way in visual technology going back to the 1950s are pornography and pro wrestling. Because they're they're both very cheap to produce and they will get <laughs> then they will get a ton of eyeballs. It's just been proven with data over time. Well, it's, it's all through civilization. You, yeah. you mentioned it with Mesopotamia and on the walls. The sex industry is usually where an economy starts a lot of times, it, all throughout civilization. And Absolutely. if anybody does know, if any of the listeners can send me an article, can send me uh, if this, this online shopping cart. Oh, yeah, if I'll you s- get something, send it to me because... That's fascinating if that's true. I I would not doubt it. I would not doubt it. I mean, you'd have to, I guess, go back to early online commerce and and how that started and early payment systems, which I'm sure it could be researched. That's that's interesting. If I I find 10 minutes, I may look that up. Yeah, well, let let me know if you find anything. But uh, I think they had trouble getting like the credit card companies, or there wasn't much e-commerce online yet. Remember, this is yeah. early internet days. They're like, what are we right. going to put online? Let's put porn. Right. And, Back uh, when Amazon was a bookstore. Amazon was a bookstore. What a long time ago. But yeah, if you find out anything, if I find out anything, if the listeners find out anything, let us know. But before we uh, sign off, anything you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah, just two quick thoughts. Number one, anybody can be a porn addict. I don't want you to hear this and think this is a male problem or this is a white problem or this is a certain, you know, non-religious problem. I can tell you both with my recovery and with helping people. I have met both males and females ranging in age from 15 years old into their mid-70s who are porn addicts. We're talking every color, every religion. Well, you know, some have other addictions, some have no other addictions. Some are very rich, some are poor, some are smart, some are stupid. Some live in mansions, some are homeless. There is no stereotypical porn addict. And I think society, unfortunately, still puts out this stereotype that, like, it's this 19-year-old guy who lives in his mom's basement that's never kissed a girl in real life. Or it's that freaky 70-year-old guy who flashes people in the park. You know, yeah, I'm sure that they can be porn addicts and they they do seem like they, they may have some tendencies. However, it can be anybody. So do not rule anybody out as a potential porn addict based on any demographic. 
And number two, while, you know, I know my story is a little bit extreme and there may be people listening who say, well, I have a problem, but not that much of a problem. Understand that I never set out to lose my job. I never set out to alienate my family. There are plenty of people who are porn addicts who, like I, were just going, you know, were able to be ongoing porn addicts for, you know, decades. It wasn't until I pulled myself off of my bipolar meds that the addictions went out of control. And that's when I reached the critical phase of addiction. Just because you're not in the critical phase of addiction yet doesn't mean you're not going to get there. I promise you, you will get there. And don't say, oh, well, this guy's got a problem, but I'm fine. Well, if you're listening to me and you're 26 years old, well, you know what? I just have a lot of time on you. You may get there in 10 years. Do you think that I wanted to be married, have two kids, have a couple great jobs and be an addict and end up having everything crash down? Of course not. I never thought I would be this guy, but I ended up this guy. And if I can end up this guy, anybody can end up this guy. So if you think you have any inclination, even if you're saying I'm only about 10% as bad as this guy, look into it, get some help. If you can get help before it reaches 20% or 30%, hey, you're probably in the driver's seat. That's fantastic. You caught it fast. It's the people who don't want to address what may be issues that may scare them. That may, they may be in denial, whatever it is, get through it, get over it and get some help. Powerful stuff. Balance. I think that's, that's the key for everybody. Balance, balance, balance. Well, Joshua, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been really eye-opening for myself and really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for letting me talk to your listeners. You know, I do have a message that people need to hear, but you have the medium and it's only because of people like you out there that I can get this message out. So I thank you so much for letting me be here. Thanks, Joshua. And thank you guys all for joining. We'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Everyone Hates Healthcare. If you have a healthcare story, we want to hear it. All you got to do is shoot me an email with my healthcare story in the subject line to my story at healthkarma.org. Also, check out all the episode notes, resources, and more ways you can take control of your healthcare. All you got to do is just visit healthkarma.org slash podcast. While you're on there, help us out. Don't forget to drop us a rating, a review, and share it with all your family and friends. Can't wait to see you next week.